How wonderful to be blessed with a church with this many covenant children. It really is a joy to see them every week. If you have your Bibles, if you'll turn with me toward the back of the Bible to Hebrews chapter 2. We're in the second week of a sermon series uh, through this incredible book of Hebrews. This is a deep dive as we look into God's word. And the whole premise is going to be this. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Wherever you are, whoever you are, whatever you've been through, whatever you're enduring right now, fix your eyes on Jesus. And as we make our way through this glorious book, we're going to see that the supremacy of Jesus, I mean, he's unlike any other. He's really greater than all. The supremacy of Jesus and the sufficiency of Jesus, that he's enough. He's enough for our life and for our salvation. The supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus are enough to help us navigate through life. Because we know that life is difficult. And we know that life is a struggle. Matter of fact, the writer to the writer that's book is writing to folks that are wondering, is this really Christianity? Is this what I signed on for? Is this it? And they started to drift a bit. Have you ever been in the ocean and and catching some waves and and maybe uh, you're a body surfer, you're out there body surfing, Uh, maybe you're a, a boogie boarder, Uh, Maybe you're the fancy pants surfer uh, that I've never been able to do. Uh, But if you've ever been out in the waves and and the waves are great and you're just out there and all of a sudden you just kind of lose touch with space and time. You kind of don't know like, you know, where you are and, and how much time you've actually been out there. And all of a sudden you look up and you're trying to find your chair and you realize you've drifted. I mean, where, where in the world are, are, am I? I mean, kind of started in one place and easily can drift to another and then have to make your way back and find your chair or whatever. Uh, I know I've certainly done that a lot. I think the way we should do it is you ride, catch a good wave, get your bearings, look at shore, find your stuff, make any adjustments you need to make and to stay right there. Well, this is basically uh, what's happening in the uh, book of Hebrews. That God's people are starting to get tossed around by the waves of life. And the author is going to say, don't drift. Don't drift from Jesus. I mean, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on this incredible good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That his supremacy, that he is sufficient. And he will cause you to endure whatever is going on. And these, these waves of life, I've, I've realized they take my eyes off of him. They can be both exciting waves, like when life gets really good and, and I'm riding a wave thinking, this is it, I'm there. Or they could be those waves that just roll over us in despair. Waves have a way of causing us to drift. Is it not true, the waves of life? Can you relate to drifting? Can you relate to the fact that, man, I'm, I'm not just focused? The scriptures will tell us that we all are like sheep who are prone to wander. Left to our own devices, we're all going to drift. And so what we got to do is fix our eyes. Fix our eyes on Christ. Well, last week we looked through Hebrews chapter 1. And Hebrews 1 tells us the, the supremacy of Jesus. I mean, it's this incredibly glorious chapter that begins to describe to us who this Jesus is. And it's amazing as we find out that Jesus is, he's the owner of all things, all things in heaven and earth. Well, they're his. Why? Well, he's the creator of all things. 
Scripture will say that he spoke and all things came into existence. He not only owns all things, he not only created all things, that he sustains all things. It uses an interesting phrase, by the, by the word of his power. All the universe right now is hanging together because of the power of our great God in Jesus. Not only that, is he's the redeemer of all things. He, he makes all things new. And he begins with us, his children. He, he makes us new creations. He's incredible as all of these things in him. To fix our eyes on him. It tells us that not only is he these things, but he's God's son. That Jesus is God in flesh. And when we see Jesus, we've seen God. And if we want to hear from God, we, we listen to Jesus. That he is this ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He's the ultimate prophet who makes the sacrifice that unites holy God and sinful people. That he's uh, the ultimate prophet who speaks for us, the priest that makes the sacrifice, and this king who reigns for us. But it tells us even more. It says that this Jesus, he's the whole point of the story. He's the whole point of God's story. He should be the whole point of our story. As a matter of fact, it says that Jesus is that he's the, he's the point of time. He's the creator of it. And he's the fulcrum of time that everything turns on him. That Jesus really is what God has to say. It's basically saying in chapter one, there's nothing like Jesus. He is unlike any other. There's no one, no thing like Jesus. When you think of somebody who's so far beyond you, someone who's so unlike you, someone who's that big and strong and glorious, do they sound very accessible what if you wanted to go see Barack Obama today and you made your way to, to up to uh, Washington, D.C. and Pennsylvania Street? You think it'd be a good idea? Just I'm going to go see I'm going to go see the president. I just want to go hang out, talk to him a little bit, get a little perspective. Then I'm going to go up there and just hang out and just walk and ring the front doorbell. I think that will go for you. Can you imagine trying to walk and try to get to the front door of the White House? You think they have a doorbell at the White House, by the way? You won't go anywhere near the front door of the White House. He's too high. He's too powerful. That's the most powerful man in the world. If you want to see him, you better have an appointment. I remember several years ago, back when uh, George Bush was in office, some friends and I uh, went to Washington and, and through some connections, we were able to get into the West Wing. But again, we didn't just walk into the West Wing. We had to send our credentials, our passports, our numbers, our information weeks before we got there. We got to get clearance and make sure that, that if we were going to have access to something that, that powerful and strong as the West Wing, do we have the right credentials to get there? Even after we sent them there, we stood in the guard gate for a pretty long time wondering, are we going to get in? Well, when something's so strong and mighty, it's often hard to be accessible. But that's not the way it is with Jesus. Listen, the beauty of this Jesus is he really is God in flesh. He really is creator, sustainer, owner, redeemer of all things. But the week in chapter two, we're going to look at this week. It's going to talk about the humanity of Jesus. That he was, although completely different than any other, ready for this? He was just like any other. He was made like you and me in every way. He relates to us. I mean, as a matter of fact, scripture says he was poor. I mean, he was accessible. And this, this Jesus was as low and as humble as any man has ever been. This high and glorious one. Here's, here's the good news. I got to tell you now, no matter who you are and where you are, 
This Jesus is low enough and accessible enough for all of us. This Jesus, well, not as he put on flesh, he relates to us. He relates to us. Why? Because he's like us. I love this. Now follow this. He's like us and he likes us. He not only is like us, but he likes us. That's the really good news of this Jesus as mighty one. And, and secondly, we're going to look at it. Jesus represents us. He's done what we failed to do. He stood in the gap for us. And we're going to see that he represents us. And that might even mean more than you think it means as we look at this text. And the third thing we're going to see is that Jesus rescues us. He makes salvation possible. He makes life possible. He unites us to a holy God. So the whole point of this message and everyone is going to be fix your eyes on Jesus. This high and holy mighty one is also just like us and is accessible to us as we turn in our Bibles to Hebrews chapter one. Uh, the writer of Hebrews, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he's going to start off and say this, hey, don't drift away from the gospel. And he's going to use some language that's a little bit confusing. So let me set this up a little bit. He's going to remind us that the angels gave us this law. Through Moses, the angels were there and gave us the law of God. And it was binding to us. But Jesus himself is going to give us the gospel. It's even more binding. So don't drift away from this gospel. But as we read this text, listen for the humanity of Jesus. Listen to the accessibility Listen to how Jesus relates to you and me. And remember, this is the creating God of the universe. Let's, let's hear the word of the Lord. Hebrews chapter four. I'm sorry, Hebrews chapter two. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere. He's going to quote Psalm 8. What is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not see yet everything in subjection to him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, that's chapter one, he's creator of all things, and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Let's hit pause here for a minute. Through suffering, Jesus didn't become morally perfect. He was always morally perfect. He was always obedient. But he became the perfect 
Savior through what he sacrificed. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source or one origin. That is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, quoting Psalm 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praises. That's incredible. Make a note there. We're going to unpack that and what that really means. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, you and me, believers in Christ. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let us pray. Oh, Father God, come and join your people. Come and speak through this broken sinner. Oh, God, would you give us ears to hear the voice of our Savior, our big brother, as he calls out our name. He's not ashamed to call us his own. God, would you give us minds to understand your word? At first blush, as we read it, it's, it's a bit confusing, not really easy to understand. So God, would you shine with your spirit into our minds that we understand what does this word say? What does it mean? And what does it mean for me? And God, would you work so powerfully that our hearts would embrace your truth and embrace your love? That God, you'd be with us, that there wouldn't be a, a person here whose heart is not warm to the gospel today and changed by the good news of the gospel. And God, would you cause our feet to walk out of here in a manner worthy of your name, the name that is above every name. God, every week I have the tendency to say that what is not from you and what is wrong and merely my opinion would fall away and be forgotten. I feel like I really need to double down on that today. What I say that is wrong or merely my opinion, let that fall away. But God, what is said that is true and it contains the good news of the gospel, would you use those things to make us more like Jesus? Would you use those things to fix all of our eyes on your son, our savior, Jesus? And it's in his holy and matchless name that we pray. Amen. If you want to follow along with me, you'll find in your bulletin an outline for you. This week, we're going to look at Jesus and his humanity and his humanity that he can relate to us. As we saw in the text in verse 17, it was that Jesus was made like us in every way. Jesus, the, the one who's eternal, Jesus, the, the eternal creating God, the almighty God was made like us in every way. He truly relates to us. 
This week, I had a great blessing, a really a tremendously fun time. Through the generosity of a dear friend, uh, we flew up uh, midweek to Buffalo, New York to go watch that mighty football team, the Buffalo Bills, play on national TV on Thursday. And as I flew into Buffalo, I got to tell you, something happened in my heart. I realized, these are my peeps. I was eating chicken wings before noon the two days I was there. I mean, these people know how to eat. For lunch one day, fried bologna sandwich. Listen, it's not enough that you have bologna. And really, to really give the good nutrients out of bologna, fry it, right? And then put it on a big fat bun and make sure you have some French fries to go with it. And put gravy over everybody. They have this special thing they're known for, beef on weck. It's roast beef, very awesome roast beef. And they put it on a weck, the bun they have that's salty and carb-filled and everything. They put some horseradish on that. And so being in Buffalo, I've realized these folks are my peeps. They know how to eat. They support the same team that's the perennial losers. I mean, I, I just can relate to these folks. Felt like family. The crazy thing about God's word is Jesus looks at us and says, this is my peeps. These are, these are my people. This is my family. And it says that Jesus isn't ashamed to call us brothers. Now that's pretty astounding when you realize that this is Jesus who knows everything about you. He knows what you did this week. He, he knows your, your deep, dark stuff, right? He knows how many times you've messed it up. He, he knows the reality of who you are. And yet it says, he's not ashamed to say, you're my peep. You're my people. You're, you're my brother. Why? Well, in verse 11, is he it gives us a little bit more explanation. He says this, we have one source, which could be translated, we have one origin. We, we have one family that Jesus put on flesh. He came to, to rescue you and me. He came to adopt us into the family so that we have this one family, this one source together. I grew up as the uncool little brother. I was the youngest of three. My brother being four years older than I uh, was or am, uh, grew up and made it clear that I was the uncool brother. Now things have changed and we're much closer than we were growing up. But I remember one thing is that back in 1969, yeah, I was alive in 69, I was very young. um, Some neighbors gave us two hats, a dark blue and a light blue New York hat. One being the Yankees that my whole family has loved for years and one being the New York Mets. And my brother wanted me to know, you're a Met fan. You can't be what I am. I'm a Yankee fan, you're a Met fan. Which, by the way, if you know anything about baseball, in 1969, they won the World Series. But we could never wear the same thing. My parents couldn't put us in the same outfits. My brother, you know, kind of was a little ashamed to call me little brothers. Anybody, any, anybody want to have a, a, a sympathy party with me? And any any uh, younger siblings here that says, man, I'm telling you, they kind of were ashamed. Anybody been ashamed of their family before? <laughs> Anybody seen any activity in your family thinking, oh my gosh, I don't know them. I'm related to them. Just keep walking. Pretend we don't know them. I I guarantee it's true for all of us because there's family dysfunction in all of our family trees. And sometimes big brothers don't love their little brothers the way they should 
And sometimes big brothers see their little brothers act and they get disgusted. They don't want to be associated with them. That's not Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers. What he's doing here, it's, it's really beautifully cool. He's, he's quoting Psalm 22. And Psalm 22 is what we call a messianic psalm. I mean, all psalms point to Jesus. Uh, uh, all the scripture will point to Jesus. But these messianic psalms, you can't miss it. Psalm 22 starts off this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sound familiar to Jesus on the cross? In Psalm 22, years before Jesus would be born, it says, you have pierced my hands and my feet. That they, they gamble for my garments in front of me. Clearly, this is Jesus on the cross. Although originally attributed to David, and David wrote this, and he says that he's going to come and he's going to gather to worship. He's not ashamed to, to proclaim the God's name among his brothers. And Jesus grabs this psalm like only Jesus can, and he makes it his own. He says, you want to really know what this psalm is all about? Let me tell you. Let's, let's look a minute at Psalm 8. I mean, Psalm 8, he's basically going to put into his own words. I'm sorry, Psalm 22. We're going to get to Psalm 8. He says in uh, Psalm 22, 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. It sounds like David is saying, hey, I'm going to tell of your name, God, to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. And now you have Jesus grabbing a hold of this and says, I'm not ashamed to call you brothers. I'm going to tell you about God's name in the midst of you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to relate to you. I'm going to love you. Jesus relates to us as family. There's more than that. Jesus relates to us in suffering. It says there here that he suffered in this world just like we did. That Jesus suffered. No one has suffered like Jesus. He was called the man of sorrow. I mean, this is God Almighty who puts on flesh to suffer like no other. But we have to realize that we suffer in the world. Jesus told us we would. If you want to live a godly life, you're going to be persecuted. You want to follow me, you're going to suffer. But you got to understand that some of Jesus' suffering is completely different than ours. Jesus suffered the wrath of God, if you're a believer, for your sins. Jesus suffered in ways that you and I will never suffer. You and I are going to suffer in this world. We're going to struggle. But the beautiful thing is there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. The incredible thing is this Jesus absorbed your sin. As he became your sin, he absorbed the wrath of God. So if you go through life, you think, man, I'm suffering because of sin. You might be suffering the consequences of your sin. And you might be suffering because of the broken world around you. And you might even be disciplined by God because he disciplines those he loves. But you will never suffer as a child of God for your sins because the sufficiency of Christ on the cross suffered enough for you and me. That is really good news. And what God has done. But there also says that Paul will say that there's a fellowship with Christ in suffering. But there's a unity with Christ. Just, just this weekend, again, it seems it comes up every week. Katie and I went back and we remembered 2009 and she relayed a story that she told someone that she remembered her journey through cancer and her, all of her treatments. And she would say, I never was closer to Jesus in that moment. I never heard him as clearly. I never loved him as deeply. It was just, it was incredible because as you suffer, Jesus is right there with you. Some of you know that even now. Some of you long for that even now. I got to tell you this about your savior. He knows your junk. 
He understands your pain. He's tasted the salt in your tears. He knows betrayal. He knows what the brokenness of life. He knew the waves of life. They, they surrounded him too. And sometimes he yelled at it, be still, and it was calm. And sometimes he didn't. But he knows. Listen, about this Savior of yours, this Jesus, he relates to your suffering. He really does. Not only that, he, he relates to you, your temptation. He's been there. In verse 18, he was tempted in every way, it tells us. Scripture will say, and yet without sin. And here's what I want you to know. When you cry out and say, God, I was tempted and I messed up. Where were you, God? If you're a child of God, listen to this. There's never been a temptation that Jesus wasn't a part of. Let me say it again. There has never been a temptation that Jesus was not a part of. He was a part of it in one of two ways. He was with you and gave you enough grace to endure the storm and, and, and survive and not sin and fall. Or the myriad of times, the millions of times that we gave in, caved in, and made a mess of it, he was there to suffer the consequences of it. Jesus, he relates to us. Fix your eyes on him. Don't drift away. He is our savior. He relates to us. Secondly is this. He represents us. He represents us. And the gospel clearly portrays, and I think if you've been around church and you've heard this gospel, you know this. The gospel clearly portrays that Jesus represents us in life, that he lived a life that we failed to live. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. None of us are perfect. And Jesus came and and he lived the life that we all failed to live. And secondly, he died the death that we all deserve to die. So he represents us in life and death. And that's the good news of the gospel. But what the beauty of the writer of Hebrews is saying, and Hebrews true, is that there's more. That he relates to us in even a deeper way. Okay, hit pause. Disclaimer. We're going to jump in the deep end. Would you jump in the deep end with me? And I, I promise you, I've prayed for this. I'm going I'm to do my best to be really clear I was, I was fair in the early service. I told him to come back. I'm going to try to be clear with you because there's a, there's a beauty that Jesus represents us here in Hebrews 2 that you don't want to miss. And it goes back to what was quoted. He quotes Psalm 8. You see, the Bible will tell us this. The Bible tells us that every single one of you, uh, myself included, we are going to be represented by one of two Adams, one of two people. That when Adam, God created Adam and Eve and he created Adam and he placed him in the garden, that he was what we call our federal head. He, he represented us. It's basically this, as Adam goes, so do we. If Adam lives, we live. If Adam dies, we die. God told us that. And he says, as soon as you, as soon as you rebel and sin, the death will come and, and everything that was meant to be will be tarnished because of it. And God had created us in his image. He created us beautiful and glorious. He crowned us with glory and honor. And here's what God did in the beginning. It was always God's plan. Now follow me. It was always God's plan that mankind, humankind, men and women, made in his image, will be crowned in honor and glory in his image and represent him on this earth. That we would have dominion over all that God has created that we would represent him and we've messed it up. That God originally put everything in subjection under his feet, but it's always been God's design 
to fill this earth with his glory through men and women. And Adam as our representative in the garden failed when he was tempted and he brought death to the all. And this is telling us something really beautiful. Jesus as our representative succeeded when tempted and brought life to all. He tasted death for everybody and he represents us. Let's go back to uh, um, Psalm chapter eight. Psalm eight, listen to these beautiful words. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens out of mouth of babes and infants. You've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy of the avenger. When I look at the work of heavens, your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place. Did you see the moon this week? When you see those things, what is man that you're mindful of him? What is, what's this word? The son of man that you care for him. Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. We just read that in Hebrews 2. And you crowned him with glory and honor. We just read that. And you've given him dominion over the works of your hand. You've put all things under his feet. You see, Psalm 8 retells us Genesis 1 and 2. Of what the whole thing was. God, you created all this. What are we? We are crowned with honor and glory. We're the masterpiece of your creation. You've created us to represent you and put all things under your feet. And now in Hebrews 2, this psalm clearly is attributed to the Son of Man, Jesus. Crowned with honor and glory as God raised him from the dead. And here's what it's saying. That Jesus represents us. And now again, he establishes that we could do that which God has created us to do. To know and love him and to represent him. To have life and life abundantly in him. It's interesting in verse 5 and 8. In 5 it says, we live now waiting for the world to come. And yet we don't see everything in subjection to him in verse eight. It basically says this. When Jesus come, came, he said, I've come with good news. I bring the kingdom of God. It is here now. Jesus is king of kings and Lord of lords now. But is everything under his feet now? No. The world's still a mess. We still have bombs going off in New York. We still have stabbings in malls in Minnesota. We still have a world that's absolutely a mess. We don't see the reign and rule of Jesus everywhere yet. Yet, but he promises that it's coming. He's conquered death and he's conquered death. And now he's saying until that day when thy kingdom will come, until that day when thy will will be done, where on earth as it is in heaven, we are the ones who live in submission to Christ. We are the ones who live on mission for Christ. We are the ones and represent him here on earth. And we fix our eyes on him. Don't fix your eyes on the waves. Don't fix your eyes on all the things that are surrounding the rip currents around you. The kingdoms are in battle. They know they are. But what does it say about the devil? He's been defeated. But we still live a life in midst embroiled in war. Do we not? Is there a war raging inside of you? Is there a roar raging outside of you? What the scripture is saying is, but Jesus is one. And that kingdom's going to come fully. Don't drift. Don't look to another. Don't look at your circumstances. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he represents us. He is that son of God who came to restore that which Adam lost. Lastly, he rescues us. It says that he rescues us from the fear of death. How does he do that? He tastes death for all of us. 
He destroys the one who has the power of death, the devil. It's basically saying this. Now in Christ Jesus, believer, you don't have to fear it anymore. The sting of of death is gone. It's a passage. That grave was empty. Our greatest fears were, were dealt with. When you die, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. One of the greatest things as a pastor of coming alongside a family who's lost a loved one, who's a believer, says, you know, their story doesn't end. They continue in Christ Jesus. As Jesus lives, they live. Jesus came, he put on flesh, he tasted death so that we could taste life. He conquered death so that we could make our way home. Jesus, not only did he... uh, take away the fear of death, but he made propitiation, which is basically he made a payment for our sins. He's covered them. He's paid for them. He's defeated them. He separated them as far as the East is from the West. Scripture says the wages of sin, the payment of sin is death, but he paid the bill and there's nothing else to pay. It's incredible good news. We owe nothing to God's justice, everything to God's grace because he made a payment. For all of our sins. And what does this make Jesus? Is this God in flesh? Well, he's merciful. Good news. He's a faithful high priest. He's a merciful, faithful high priest who not only makes a sacrifice, but he is the sacrifice. The sacrifice of his own life for us to live. Jesus, God in flesh, relates to you. Why? Because Jesus is like us. And this tells us that Jesus likes us. He calls us brother. Jesus represents us. Are you here in this room? Are you in Christ Jesus? Have you given your life? Have you placed your faith and trust in Christ alone? Then he represents us. And, and the way God sees us, ready for this, he doesn't see you and your, your junk and your deformity and your brokenness and your sin. You know how you know God sees us? He sees us in Christ. Beautiful, radiant, glorious, crowned with glory and honor. That's who you are in Christ Jesus. Crowned with glory and honor. That's what Christ has done for us by representing us. And he rescues us. Oh, how he rescues sinners like us. He's rescued us. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. If you are in Christ Jesus, you truly are set free. You truly have been made alive. And God is now calling you. Listen, as as Jesus represents us in heaven, I love this. I get this right out of the Valley of Vision. We have the privilege of representing him on earth. We are the ones who are in Christ Jesus. Unbelievably, because of Christ's life, death, and resurrection, we in him are also crowned with honor and glory. We're made as sons, and we're living on this earth declaring that Jesus is is our only hope. Fix your eyes on Christ, not the waves around you, not your circumstances, because the supremacy and the sufficiency of Jesus is enough, enough for even your own life. Let us pray. Father God, how beautiful is your son, Jesus? Jesus, We've had two chapters in the book of Hebrews describing who you are. You couldn't be more beautiful and glorious. I confess, I just don't have words to articulate how mighty and strong you are and how low and humble and accessible you are. You are everything we need. 
you would be everything we'll ever want. Your supremacy is sufficient. And God, we ask that you would help us, Holy Spirit, to focus our eyes on Christ, not the waves of life around us, that we wouldn't drift away. That God, that we'd be a church, we'd be people that just, God, our love with you, that can't get over what you've done for us. And God, I love that at the end of the day, it's, it's not going to be our grip on you that wins the day. It's your grip on us. And that Jesus, there'll never be a moment that you're ashamed to call your children brothers. It's awesome. Father, I pray for those who are yet to be in Christ. Those that are still in that first Adam. Those that are living in sin and death. I mean, gosh, we're all sinners. But God, would today be the day that you give them eyes to see, a heart to embrace, that Jesus really is who he claimed to be, fully God, fully man, the only savior of the world. And may each of us fix our eyes on him. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.